Well, we continue our series in the book of Ephesians this morning, and we get to the second half of the book, the practical half, where Paul takes all the wonderful, heady theology that he's been espousing, and now he explains what it means for our everyday lives. And so this week and next, we're going to look at that passage in Ephesians uh, that Joan read, verses 21 to 31 of chapter 5. You can open there if you have a Bible where Paul talks about relationships between husbands and wives. And after that skit, um, I think the best thing for me to do is punt and uh, tackle the husband part this week. That's straightforward, and, and we'll push off the wife part till next week. So hopefully you'll come back for that. Now, I want to recognize that not everyone here is married or, or part of a family. And God calls some people to to be single, and that's a wonderful calling, too. And this sermon is particularly for husbands and for guys who hope to be husbands someday. But I think all of us, if we listen to it attentively, will hear echoes of Christ's love for us and also of his call for us to love one another. The story is told of the great Persian emperor Cyrus who once captured a prince and the prince's family. And when the captives came before Cyrus, the great monarch asked the prince, what will you give me if I release you? And the prince said, half of my wealth. And if I release your children, everything I possess. And if I release your wife? And the prince replied, your majesty, I will give you myself. Cyrus was so moved by the young man's devotion that he freed all of them. And as they returned home, the prince said to his wife, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? And with a deep look of love for her husband, she replied, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. Husbands, in today's passage, we learn that this is the way we're to love our wives every day. Now, our passage today addresses the hot-button topic of male and female roles in relationships. And because this text is such a battleground, and there are so many strong feelings connected with the topic, we're going to have to work very carefully through the passage. And I want to start by reminding us of two fundamental rules for interpreting any passage of Scripture. The first rule is that we have to be careful not to read our own assumptions and experiences into God's word. We have to let it speak on its own terms. The second rule is that we can't understand what a passage means for us today until we've understood what it meant for the people to whom it was originally written. In other words, we can't understand what today's passage says about male and female roles today until we first understand what it said about those roles for those living in Ephesus in the day that Paul wrote this letter. Are you with me? So let's start off by getting a picture of what married life was like in Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote. And to help us understand, I want to introduce you to a typical Ephesian woman. We'll call her Lucia, and she's going to describe her life for us. Hi, my name is Lucia. Work with me here. Use your imagination. (laughs) I live in my husband's large house in Ephesus, along with our children and several other relatives. We also live, of course, with our slaves and my husband's business partner and a few apprentices. My husband and I are both master weavers, and we oversee the production and sale of textiles from our busy home. Now, while our home has its private quarters, 
It's also a public place. It's, it's bursting with commerce and gossip and news from around the city and the empire. And ever since our home was transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, we've become a small church as well. We, we follow and we worship Christ as a community together. Now, Jesus coming into our lives has changed my life as a woman a great deal. But let me tell you what my life used to be like. Demosthenes, the great Greek orator, spoke for most free men when he said, We have mistresses and prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have slave girls for the sake of daily sexual needs. And we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian for all of our household affairs. No wonder Socrates said that there were three blessings for which he was grateful, that he was born a human being and not a brute, that he was born a man and not a woman, and that he was born a Greek and not a barbarian. Well, as a woman, I wasn't so blessed. Sharing my husband's attention and intimacy with our slave girls and with mistresses, paid and unpaid. I, of course, was seldom permitted to leave the home. After all, I might get raped or seduced out there in the big bad world. Like most other women I know, I married as a teenager. My husband, of course, was uh, about 30 when we were married, and so he took up raising me right where my parents had left off. He had almost complete authority over me in my life. I have few real rights and protections under the law. He determines my household responsibilities, what education and information I have access to, when I can come and go, what religion I may follow, and who I may associate with. I'm actually privileged not to have been divorced. I know how to keep my man happy, and thankfully I've borne him a, a son. Divorce in our city is a given, though. Of course, it's very hard for us women to divorce our husbands, but they can divorce us anytime they, anytime they wish. My husband's friends like to quote the Roman Seneca on the matter. Women are married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In fact, divorce and remarriage are so common that a lot of my girlfriends date the years by the names of their husbands. Well, thank you, Lucia, for that helpful background. Husband or uh, households like the one that Lucia lived in were the primary building block of society and, and the key to the stability of the Roman Empire at that time. And so Roman society developed what are called household codes. These codes set out and they reinforced the duties and the responsibilities which society expected of a household and those in the household, husbands and wives, masters and slaves, fathers and children. And that's what we have in Ephesians 5, 22 to 6 through 9. We have a household code for followers of Jesus. But to set this code in context, listen to a couple excerpts from some other codes which were around at the time that Paul wrote. Here's a quote from a code that Aristotle had developed in his politics. He wrote, For it is part of the household science to rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. And here's a quote from the philosopher Philo's code in his Hypothetica. A woman, he wrote, is inferior to her husband in all things. Let her therefore be obedient to him. For God has given the authority to the husband. That's the world that the Ephesians lived in as they 
came to Christ and, and as they learned to try to follow Christ faithfully in their culture. And Paul wrote them his letter to encourage them and to instruct them and to remind them of who they were now that they were in Christ and how they were to live as, as God's new people. In Ephesians 1 and 2, we saw that, that Paul reminded the Ephesians of the grand reality that, that God is in control of the whole world and of where it's headed. And that God has installed his son, Jesus Christ, on the throne of the universe. And that Jesus is in the process, in Ephesians 2 we saw last week, of bringing peace and unity to the whole universe. Mending and bringing together all of the, the fractured and frayed and dis discordant strands of our world. Paul also reminded the Ephesians that as God's people, God had placed them right in the center of this work that Jesus is doing. They... And we get to experience Christ's redemptive kingdom work and also to model it and to share it for the world. And so now in Ephesians 4, Paul begins telling us how we're to live in light of all this. We're to live in unity, uh, humbly loving one another and helping one another to grow up in Christ and to become more like him. The redemption and the healing of the whole universe that Paul had been talking about in the first three chapters of Ephesians, now in the next three chapters, we find must find expression, first of all, in our relationships as God's people. We actually saw that in Ephesians 2 last week. And now we learn, especially, this is true in our marriages and in our families, which may be the most difficult places to live up to all this of all. Amen? Marriages in Paul's day were so utterly ruined and corrupted compared to what God wanted them to be. And that's still far too true today. So that's one reason that Paul takes the time and the space in his letter to elaborate in great detail through this household code of what lives will look like in a household which is being transformed by Jesus Christ. And when we read Paul's code against the backdrop of Paul's day, Folks, his code is absolutely revolutionary. You have to understand that household codes in Paul's day were all written from the male's point of view. They lectured his wife and his children and his slaves on, on what their duties were and what obedience they owed to him. If these codes addressed the man of the house at all, it was just to encourage him to rule over his family. But here in Paul's code, he does the unheard of. He speaks to these authoritarian patriarchs. We learned last week that they're called paterfamiliases. These men who had almost complete control over their households and who lived in a man's world and, and who were used to enjoying all the privileges thereof, power and control and promiscuity and status. And Paul commands these men to love their wives. To love them. And then Paul does something even more radical. He devotes three times more space in his household code to addressing the man's responsibility toward his wife than hers toward him. He drums in verse after verse into these thick-headed Ephesian husbands how now that they follow Christ, they need to love their wives with a tender, affectionate, delightful, sacrificial love. 
Folks, this is absolutely earth-shattering. And so here's the point of this whole passage into its first context, the day that Paul wrote it. When Christ steps into a family, husbands love their wives until it hurts. What? Husbands sacrifice? No way! This was radical in Paul's day. And unfortunately, it's still far too radical today, even in churches. Well, in Paul's day, his teaching on marriage shook the Roman household to its very core. It it caused the the tectonic plates of, of basic existence to shift underneath people's feet so that life would never be the same again. As Christ stepped in and completely renovated the household, bringing his kingdom and his rule, a new creation. Husbands, if Christ is going to be present by the Spirit in your home, then get ready because a lot of things are going to have to change. Maybe a lot has changed already, but Christ isn't done with you yet. But what exactly is going to change? How, we, how do we bring this message up to date for us today? I mean, our culture is very different from that of the Ephesians, right? We live in an age where radical feminism has shaped the culture and the national conversation. It's an age where it's politically incorrect to be a man today. And male bashing is an accepted national pastime. In our age, men are no longer sure what it means to be a man. And a third of boys don't even grow up with a father who could show them how. And so we're caught between macho images of maleness on the one hand and and sensitive, caring images on the other. And so many of us, we, we... we may feel like we don't know how to be men or husbands. And, and like no matter what we do, someone is bound to say that it's wrong and to criticize us for it. Right? Isn't that the age we live in? Especially our young people. So what does it mean to be a man today, especially in, in the context of, of a relationship with a woman? Well, Paul's household code can't provide us with a complete answer because he wasn't addressing our situation or our culture. But he does point us to the heart of the matter which transcends time and culture. It's the same message for us as men today as it was in Paul's day. And and that is that we begin to be men when we love others and when we love the women in our lives in particular until it hurts. Several years ago, Ann and I were at a retreat with the college and career group of our church in Canada, and we were doing a Q&A panel on sex and relationships with another, um, an elder and, and his wife in the church. And one of the young people asked us a question about what it meant for a man to be the spiritual leader of his family. And this elder said something really profound that I still remember. He, he said, A lot of people will tell you that to be a spiritual leader means to lead the family devotions or to make sure that that we pray at the dinner table or or that we read the Bible at supper time, but that's not it at all. He said to be a spiritual leader is instead to be the first to serve and sacrifice, the first to say I'm sorry, the first to say I was wrong, will you forgive me, the first to give up my rights 
and my privileges and my prerogatives. That is a spiritual leader after the pattern of Jesus. And so men, when Christ steps into a family, husbands love their wives until it hurts. Are you up for the challenge? Well, Paul gives us two pictures to drive this point home. The first is a picture of Christ marrying his bride, the church. And the second is a picture of a man and his body. Let's take a look at the first picture. Verse 25, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. When I married Anne, I paid several hundred dollars for a marriage license and for a ring and for some tuxes for myself and my groomsmen. I think I also paid for the honeymoon. In Paul's day, a young man would pay a sizable sum of money to or or in-kind gift of sheep or who knows what to to the girl's husband as a, a bride price. But here, Paul reminded us that Christ paid far more than that for his bride. Christ loved us so much that he paid his very life as the bride price to be able to have us as his bride. And Paul says, husbands, this is how we are to treat our wives. Paul explains that through Christ's death, that that paying of, of the bride price, Christ does three things for his bride. He first makes her holy, verse 26. He cleanses her by washing, verse 26. And he presents her to himself in all of her glory, verse 27. He makes her holy. That means that he sets her apart as his own. That's one of the meanings that holy has, and it's, it's a meaning that comes into play here. He sets her apart as his own. That's what happens as a wedding. A bride and a groom set themselves apart for each other. A bride is no longer available to other men, but she's entered into a sacred union with her husband. And by his death, Christ says to his bride, I love you so much that I'm going to die. And by my shed blood, I set you apart for myself alone. Christ also cleanses his bride by washing. In ancient times, bathing was quite infrequent due to the lack of water. But a bride's wedding day was definitely a day when she got a bath in preparation for the wedding and for her wedding night afterwards. And here, Paul gives us a tender picture of Christ himself carefully washing his bride, most likely through, through the waters of baptism. It says through the word, the word accompanied baptism, which you, you entered into the, the message, the, the gospel. He washes her. He, he, he does it to, to cleanse and to purify and, and to beautify her for her wedding. So at the wedding ceremony, he can then present her to himself. How? Without spot, Paul says, or wrinkle or any such imperfection, but in all of her glory. The bride is gorgeous. Her skin is flawless. There's no blemish, no wrinkle, but, but she, it's, her skin is smooth as silk and she's radiant. And this is what Christ is doing for us now. He's in the process of cleaning us up, beautifying us, so that one day when he returns, he can present us to himself as perfect and holy and glorious and beautiful. 
And so, husbands, Paul says, in the same way, treat your wives. But this isn't some home improvement project where us men are supposed to fix our wives and and harp on them about their sins and their failures. Remember, Jesus is our example. Jesus doesn't control us. He doesn't guilt us or pressure us or manipulate us into changing, does he? Rather, Jesus lays down his life for us. And and then he he patiently and tenderly woos us and, and through his spirit nudges us, giving us lots of room and time until we, we come to aspire toward maturity and beauty. And then we take his hand and he leads us in the direction he wants us to go. Isn't that how Jesus treats us? And so we as husbands are to love our wives so well and to make them feel so cherished and secure that our unconditional love will hopefully motivate them to grow and to blossom at their own pace in, into their, the, their character and their, their spiritual maturity. Joni Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager, describes very well her experience of this kind of love on her wedding day. She writes, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to lift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding ground, which didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky gray machine. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew at the back of the church to, to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his wedding attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to, to uh, look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. Men, our challenge is to make our wife feel like our bride every day. Because that's how she'll be motivated to grow spiritually and to grow into everything God wants her to be. The second picture Paul gives husbands of how they're to love their wives is the image of a man and his body. Paul points out that, of course, no one ever hated his body. Now, it's true today that a lot of people say they hate their bodies. But what they really mean is that they hate the way their bodies look, right? We may not like our body's shape. We may not like our skin or our hair, but we love our bodies. I mean, think of all the money we spend on our bodies. We must love them. We, we spend money on fashion, on, on good food, on medical care and in lots of insurance, on exercise, on diet, on cosmetics, on hairstyles, on and on it goes. Not to mention shampoo and toothpaste and deodorant and soap, the basics. We can't help but love our bodies because they're part of us. And Paul says, husbands, this is the way you're to care for your wife. She is your body. And when you care for her, you're, caring, you're taking care of yourself. Because the two of you are one flesh, whether you realize it or not. Now, Paul isn't being deeply theological here. He's just being plain pragmatic. 
He's saying, come on, guys, think about it. You and she are, are deeply and mysteriously connected. We'll, we'll never understand it. She seems to have a better handle on it sometimes than we do. But when you hurt and neglect your wife, you only hurt yourself. And when you love your wife, you love yourself. Happy wife, happy husband, right? <laughs> the Christian comedian Ken Davis discovered this one day to his surprise. He recounts, for the first 15 years of my marriage, I was a terrible husband. Diane, my wife, held down a full-time job. She became my secretary. She mothered our daughters, and she waited on me hand and foot without ever demanding that I lift a finger to help. I loved my wife very much, but I hadn't yet learned how to show my love. I had a lesson to learn, and God used a vacuum cleaner to teach it. <laughs> I learned many things about vacuuming one day. First, I learned that our cat was terrified of vacuum cleaners. That kept me entertained for about an hour. <laughs> then I realized as I vacuumed in one direction, a stripe would appear. Going the opposite direction would create a stripe of a different shade. In trance, I striped the whole room. Then I went crossways, creating a checkerboard pattern. I got so carried away, I dusted the furniture and straightened the entire house. Afterwards, I was once again embedded in the easy chair working on my crossword puzzle when Diane came home. She struggled through the door with a bag of groceries under each arm, kicked the door closed with her foot, and, and then took in the house with an expert glance. Her mouth dropped open. Slowly, the bag slipped from her grasp and dropped to the floor. Who did this, she asked. I did, I said. Without warning, she attacked. Diving on me before I could get out of the chair, she smothered me with kisses and hugs. The kisses grew more passionate. We broke the chair. <laughs> well, Anne and I have experienced two cycles in our marriage. One cycle begins when I slip into lazy husband syndrome. And that's when I see how much I can get away with not doing to help around the house and with the kids. Well, th this lazy husband syndrome forces Anne into a corner because she has two choices. She can either do all the work herself and get resentful, or she can ask me for help. But she knows if she asks me for help that I might hesitate or complain about how hard I've been working and how I need a break. And then she feels bad, or, or she might get upset because she's been working hard too. And then I might get upset that she's upset. I mean, I was just minding my own business, trying to have some downtime, and now she's mad at me. And you can see where this is going, and by the time the fight's over, I, for one, end up feeling miserable, like a man who's not taking good care of his body. The other cycle in our marriage begins when I go out of my way to be proactive. I don't wait to be asked. I look for chances to pitch in and to help Anne, to change a diaper, to fix something that's broken, to clean up a mess. Even if I'm tired, even if I feel like I need a break. And when I do this, Anne feels supported and appreciated and cared about, cared about. She's happier and she feels more affection for me, which makes me want to help even more. And so we get into a positive cycle, and I feel great like a man who's taking care of his body. That's what Jesus promised, right? He said, the man who loses his life will find it. 
And so when this Jesus steps into a family, something earth-shaking and utterly transforming takes place. Husbands love their wives until it hurts. So here's the challenge um, for husbands. Wives, you're off the hook this week. Rest up because it's coming next week. And if you're not a husband or wife, then I invite you to uh, pick some significant person in your life to apply this challenge to. And it's to do one thing each day for your wife or, or for that other person to let them know that they're appreciated. Maybe it's to give them something. Maybe it's to do something for them. Maybe it's to say something to them. Maybe it's to spend time with them. Um, something to let them know that they're appreciated. Now, some of us husbands have been finding this book really helpful. So if you, if you don't have any ideas, pick up a copy of this book this week, The Love Dare. It's got uh, 40 days' worth of ideas. This came from the movie Fireproof. So that's the challenge. Let me pray. Jesus, when you called us to follow you, you told us right away, that the way to put our trust in you was to take up our crosses, to lay down our lives. Um, and that sounds great in theory, but the rubber meets the road for those of us who are married every day, all the time, in relation to that other person that we chose to spend our life with. And Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, give us your heart, and teach us to live that out in relation to that person. Amen.